Hello ladies and gentlemen my name is Ron Gupta and welcome to my podcast a beginner's guide to investing in this podcast i'll be explaining different financial instruments such as shares bonds derivatives etfs and mutual funds give a basic explanation as to what they are and then explain how you can make money from them how you can net a profit from these instruments just to give a little bit of information about myself Currently I study in year 11 which is grade 10. I have multiphase interests such as debating, American football, basketball and reading and I'm from India. Further since I've turned 13 I've dabbled in finance especially the stock market. My father is fascinated with finance and his interest trickled to me. I was initially introduced to stocks by my father when he bought me a book discerning the field. This book which I'm pretty sure every one of us has heard was called the intelligent investor it took me a week to get through this book nonetheless when i reached its conclusion i too became fascinated with shares with etfs with mutual funds this entire financial spectrum ever since then i've been analyzing companies for my parents and instructing them to invest a certain number of shares into a multitude of corporations and of course i have done this with other instruments too and the main hobby i pursue out of school is the same in today's episode i'll introduce two of the five financial instruments we will cover in this series just to elaborate the five financial instruments we will cover in this series of course there'll be a couple more but these are the five basic ones we will cover are shares bonds derivatives etfs and mutual funds again like i had said i'll explain to you why they are issued give an explanation as to how they work and then explain how you can net a profit from them in today's episode however i'll be explaining shares and derivatives essentially i'll provide an explanation as how as to how they function how does one trade them why are these instruments issued and where can one trade them the first couple of podcasts of the series will serve as introductions to this convoluted field whereas in the following episodes we will cover the modus operandi of investing in these instruments in more and greater depth essentially in this episode and the next episode i'll be building your basics ensuring that they're rock solid before i move on to certain analyses like fundamental analysis technical analysis etc so today's episode which is shares and derivatives i'll be explaining what they are how do they function and most likely in the fourth or fifth episode you will be seeing a complete breakdown on how you can invest in them how you can net a profit from these instruments the information that i'll present in this podcast is credulous as it has been corroborated by industry leading experts and has been collated with the utmost diligence further i can comprehend the viewpoint of a beginner investor at the end of the day i'm only a teen i'm only 15 i know the quandaries beginner investors face when they attempt to enter the stream and i'll be able to address those better than any consummate investor than any hedge fund manager than anyone else with my podcast a beginner investor will be able to fathom all the terminologies all the manners through which one can accumulate capital in the stock market and all the methods through which you can evaluate each of these instruments these podcasts will be intricate scrupulous enlightening and will address everything within this field everything you will need to make money
Before I move on to delineating what shares are, let me first elucidate why you should hold financial assets. You should hold financial assets as they generate a stream of income for your investors. Investors can trade these instruments in order to receive capital or to receive uh, in the form of interest from a bond or interest from a share. Secondly, holding a plethora of financial instruments diversifies an investor's portfolio as they can invest in assets that perform independently of each other. Finally, it enables the investor to prepare for any losses. All these factors amalgamated allow the investor to attain financial freedom. What is financial freedom and why is it important, you may ask? Well, financial freedom usually means having enough savings, which are in the form of financial investments, and cash on hand to afford the kind of life we desire for ourselves and our families. It means growing savings that enable us to retire or pursue the career we want without being driven by earning a set salary each year. With investing, you, yes you, will be able to live the life you deserve, uh, you deserve, you desire. Now, are you ready to learn? Alright, now I will deconstruct shares for a beginner investor. So essentially, in today's episode, the first half will be explaining shares, the second half will be explaining derivative tradings. Let's go. Essentially, shares are small percentages of a firm that are available for the general public to buy or sell. Companies issue shares to raise capital, which they can invest to bargain and grow their business. To phrase this in a more technical manner, shares represent equity ownership in a corporation of financial asset owned by investors who exchange capital in return for these units. These are the types of explanations you are going to see online, whereas I will deconstruct it into very simple layman words. Secondly, let us also clarify and clarify the distinction between a share and a stock. Kotak security sums this up in a coherent manner, wherein they state stock represents its holder's part ownership in one or several companies. Meanwhile, share refers to a single unit of ownership in a company. For example, if X has invested in stocks, it could mean that X has a portfolio of shares across different companies. Get it? Moving forward, one key definition we must also define is shareholders. Shareholders are investors who acquire the shares the company formulates and therefore own a segment of the corporation. There are two forms of shares, common and preferred. A common share facilitates voting rights and potential returns through price appreciation and dividends. But as preferred stocks pay set dividends at specific intervals but do not provide voting rights. Voting rights enable shareholders to vote on certain corporate actions, elect members to the board of directors, and approve issuing new securities or payments of dividends. To ensure everyone is on the same page, I'll just explain what dividends are. Dividends are the distribution of a company's earnings to its shareholders and is determined by the company's board of directors. Further, a dividend is paid per share. So, let's say you own 50 shares and the company is willing to pay $3 per share in their annual dividends. So, you will receive $150 per year. As explained before, for some companies, shares exist as a financial asset 
providing for an equal distribution of any residual profits, if any are declared, in the form of dividends. The dividends a shareholder receives is proportional to the percentage of shares they own. For instance, if an investor owns 100,000 shares of a certain firm that has 10 million shares outstanding, they will receive 1% of the declared dividends as 100% constitutes 1% of 10 million. Shareholders of a stock that pays no dividends do not participate in distribution of profits. Instead, they anticipate participating in the growth of the stock price as the company's profits increase. So what I meant was any shareholder who does not receive money through dividends makes their money through appreciation and depreciations in the stock price. And we all know this. This is common knowledge. To sum up the aforementioned, I'll provide a very short, brief and coherent summation. Investors will purchase shares for capital growth. This is attained when the value or price of a share rises and is also sorry and is also attained through dividends. Share prices tend to appreciate and depreciate based on the company's financial performance, general economic news, and how investors perceive the economy, company or market. There are two types of markets, bull and bear, which we will explore in further episodes. Moreover, there's one caveat to dividends. Many companies do not pay dividends if you're a common stockholder as they are not mandated or obliged to. I will now break down the process of a firm issuing shares and being traded on a stock exchange. Why is this important to know, you may ask? Well, these firms that uh, issue their shares for the first time are called IPOs. And IPOs tend to be lucrative wealth generation opportunities opportunities for investors. However, most beginner investors are not willing or able to fathom the concept of IPOs and thus miss out on these chances. Alright, let's go ahead. Companies tend to issue shares when they necessitate capital to invest or pay off losses. As we have mentioned before, when an investor invests in a firm, they own a small segment of it. When a company requires funds to start a new project, the company approaches the primary market channel by issuing a prospectus. The prospectus gives all the details of the project, like its requirement in the economy, market competition, profitability, funds requirement, etc. All these details have to be supported by surveys and reports of experts to satisfy the shareholders slash prospective buyers on the feasibility of the project. After the prospectus uh, slash project details have been verified by the stock exchange, it grants permission to the approaching company for the issue of the shares. The company then approaches a board which decides on the price of the shares. This is what we call an IPO, which also stands for Initial Public Offering. Essentially, an IPO is the selling of securities to the public in the primary market. A primary market deals with new securities being issued for the first time. Investment banks will set a price at which the new shares will be offered. They may also underwrite the IPO and guarantee to take on any unsold shares. Furthermore, shares may be resold at a different price in the stock exchange from the first day of issue. Before an IPO, a company is considered private. As a pre-IPO company, the business has grown with a relatively small number of shareholders, including early investors like the founders, families, and friends along with professional investors such as venture capitalists or angel investors. When a company goes public, 
the previously owned private share ownership converts to public ownership and the existing private shareholders shares become worth the public trading price meanwhile the public market opens up a huge opportunity for millions of investors to buy shares in the company and contribute capital to a company's shareholders equity after listing on the stock exchange the company becomes a publicly traded company and the shares of the firm can be traded freely in the open market another key point that we must address is what are the platforms on which one can trade stocks on which you can trade stocks to trade stocks you need the aid of a licensed stock broker there are four forms of licensed stock brokers online brokers compromise the first time wherein one can buy stocks online costs are incurred per transaction and these brokers do not provide any advice the second option is discount brokers discount brokers are similar to online brokers however they charge a minute fee when they provide assistance they will disseminate information concerning corporations amongst investors but will stop short of investing advice the third type is service brokers who are traditional stock brokers they fathom the person's financial needs on a personal scale and forward a financial plan that best suits an individual's goal they can also provide assistance for estate planning tax filing and retirement planning their fees may seem exorbitant but this fee is warranted by their work usually $1000 is sufficient to open an account finally we have money managers Money managers act as financial managers but take full discretion of the client's portfolio. They charge hefty fees and require at least $100,000. I think you guys should start with a licensed stockbroker. You should take the onus of learning to invest by yourself. If you do not have the financial ability to hire a financial manager, It's not that hard to learn investing as you will see in this series and you yourself will be fulfilled by learning this process. The final introductory point we must discern concerning shares is the difference between authorized and issued shares. Authorized shares are the number of shares that a corporation is legally allowed to issue. The number of authorized shares is initially set in a company's article of incorporation. the shareholders can increase the number of authorized shares at any time at a shareholders meeting as long as a majority of shareholders vote in favor of the change issued shares is fairly simply sorry my bad issued shares is fairly simple to grasp issued shares are those shares that have been distributed to shareholders by a corporation essentially issued shares are the number of shares that have been sold to investors already and that concludes our introduction to stocks before we move on to derivatives i want to clarify a point it is of paramount importance you understand these processes as a multitude of beginner investors indulge in trading without comprehending the ideas that act as the basis for trading if you do not understand the foregoing you will not be able to understand basic reports and you will not be able to understand material that expands on investing as they employ these concepts in their teachings with seldom explanation this is again because this knowledge is deemed as requisite for any investor whether you are a hedge fund manager the top of the top or a beginner investor but i feel that it hasn't really taught me how i can make money through investing and therefore it is completely futile and that is a fallacy i'll tell you why this information is so 
compulsory to understand. Firstly, whenever you're going to analyze any company, they're going to mention these specific terminologies. And if you don't understand them, how are you going to make smart investment decisions? Secondly, there's a reason why every successful investor understands these terminologies. It explains how the entire financial industry works, how your shares can reflect the current condition of the industry they are. And therefore, if you do not know these terminologies, then you will not be able to understand the external factors that affect uh, stocks, uh, appreciation, depreciation, or dividends declaration. And therefore, you will lose on a lot of money and thirdly there are many reports and while you invest throughout your tenure of investing which will be hopefully through your lifetime i do hope you will be reading many reports or multiple reports on the company you're wishing to invest on the industry you're trying to invest in on the instrument you're trying to specialize into or just a general financial spectrum and in these reports they throw these terms they throw it so commonly and if you do not understand them these terminologies you're going to waste a lot of time trying to decipher them and here i've given you clear no uh nonsense cut coherent explanation elucidation on these terminologies so that you don't have that fear that okay if i read a report i'll understand every single part of that report and i won't have to worry about researching uh and wasting my time on a five minute read and turning it into a 30 minute read now, what is derivative trading? A derivative is a financial contract set between two or more parties wherein the value of a derivative is derived from fluctuations in the price of an underlying asset. They are utilized to insure against risk or hedge and to speculate on price movements. Common examples of this underlying assets are bonds, stocks, commodities, currencies, interest rates and market indexes. An important thing to remember is that prices for derivatives derive from fluctuations in the underlying asset. One common question that arises whenever anyone talks about derivative trading is what is hedging? Hedging is basically an insurance policy. It is a way to reduce the risk of your portfolio. So for instance, let us say you bought a Tesla share. To hedge that share, you would hold a short position on Tesla. This ensures that even if the share's price depreciation depreciates sorry my bad you will not lose money further there are four forms of derivatives these are futures forwards swaps and options i'm going to explain each of these in detail especially using examples a futures contract or simply futures is an agreement between two parties for the purchase and delivery of an asset at an agreed upon price at a future date futures are standardized contracts that trade on an exchange Traders use a futures contract to hedge their risk or speculate on the price of an underlying asset. These parties involved are obligated to fulfill a commitment to buy or sell the underlying asset. For example, say that on November 6, 2021, Company A buys a futures contract for oil at a price of $62.22 per barrel that expires on December 19, 2021. The company does this because it needs oil in December and is concerned that the price will rise before the company needs to buy. Buying an oil futures contract, contract hedges the company's risk because the seller is obligated to deliver oil to company A for $62.22 per barrel once the contract expires. Assume oil prices rise to $80 per barrel by December 19, 2021. 
Company can accept delivery of the oil from the seller of the futures contract, but if it no longer needs the oil, it can also sell the contract before expiration and keep the profits. It is also possible that one or both of the parties are speculators with the opposite opinion about the direction of December oil. In that case, one might benefit from the contract and one might not. Take for example the futures contract for West Texas Intermediate Oil that trades on the CME and represents 1,000 barrels of oil. If the price of oil rose from $62 to $80 per barrel, the trader with the long position, the buyer, in the futures contract would have profited $17,780 because 80 minus $62.22 times 1,000 would give you $17,780. The trader with the short position, which is the seller, in the contract would have a loss of $17,780. So let me recap this because it seems a bit complicated and I'll break it down. So the trader with the long position in this contract, which is the buyer, is buying a thousand barrels of oil at $62.22 when the price is actually $80. And the trader with the short position, which is the seller in this contract, is selling the barrels of oil, the thousand barrels of oil, at $62.22 when you could have sold them at $80 and hence he's making a loss. Forward contracts or forwards are similar to futures but they do not trade on an exchange. These contracts only trade over the counter. As OTC products, forwards contracts carry a greater degree of counterparty risk for both parties. It is important you know that over-the-counter markets are those in which participants trade unlisted securities directly between two parties without the use of a central exchange or other third party. So trades are made through emails and phone calls. Let's move on to swaps. A swap in finance is when two parties exchange financial instruments such as interest rates, cash flows, or securities. Swaps are often conducted to exchange riskier assets for more predictable assets. For instance, let us say two people, Jim and Bruce, are good friends. Jim owns a store and Bruce is an investment banker. Now, Jim takes a loan at LIBOR plus 3%. LIBOR is a floating rate, meaning it goes up and down. Thus, you never really know how much interest you are going to be paying at the end of the month. One month, it may be $2,400. Another month, it could be $1,900. This exasperates Jim as he abhors risks and loves predictability. Therefore, he goes to Bruce, asking for help. Bruce says he is willing to swap Jim's floating variable rate for a fixed rate of $2,000. You, you, Jim, are going to pay me $2,000 and I, Bruce, will take the risk of paying your loan. At times, this can work out for Bruce, wherein he receives $2,000, but the interest rate mandates him to only pay, let's say, $1,700. He gets to pocket the $300 difference. Nevertheless, the opposite can also take place. When the bank mandates he has to pay, uh, assume, $2,300. Here, he loses $300. Finally, we have an options contract. An options contract is similar to a futures contract in that it is an agreement between two parties to buy or sell an asset at a predetermined future date for a specific price. The key difference between options and futures 
is that with an option, the buyer is not obliged to exercise the agreement to buy or sell. There are two types of options. Calls or puts. Calls are typically employed when one, when one believes a stock will rise in value. The opposite is true for puts. A call option is a contract between two parties to exchange a stock at a strike price by a predetermined date. The buyer of the call has the right, but not obligation, to buy the stock at the strike price. For instance, if a stock is trading at $50 and you think it will rise to $60, you may acquire a $55 call option for $0.20. Cents. If the stock rose to $60, you would be allowed to purchase the stock at $55, netting you a $4.80 fee. I mean profit, of course, because we have to take into account the $0.20 cents you paid for the option. That is because you bought the stock at $55 instead of $60, and you also paid the $0.20 cent fee for the put option. On the other hand, the seller would be obligated to sell the call and thus would lose $4.80. Nonetheless, if the stock never rises above $55 by the expiration date, the buyer can simply not exercise his right and wait till the expiration date for the contract. With the put option, the buyer of the put once again has a right but not obligation to sell the stock at the strike price, but as a seller of the put must purchase the stock if the buyer exercises the option. For example, if a stock is trading at $50 and you think it may go down to $40, you might buy a $45 put option for say $0.25. Cents. If the stock dropped to $40, that would allow you to sell the stock at $45, netting you $4.75 in profit. That is because you sold the stock at $45 instead of $40. Nonetheless, you did pay the 20 cent, 25 cent fee for the put option. So, once again, to reiterate, if stock is trading at $50 and you think it may go down to $40, you buy a $45 option put. Then, uh, let's say it reaches $40 like you expected, you get to sell the $45 share instead of selling the $40 share. And uh, including the price you paid for the option, you make a profit of $4.75. On the other hand, the person that sold you the put must purchase the stock from you. He must, he is obligated to, if you exercise your right. Once again, if the stock never falls below $45, the buyer of the put can wait for the put option to expire. In a put auction, so in a put option, you're selling. You're selling the share, but you're not buying the share. In a call option, you are buying the share. In a put option, you are selling the share. Now, before you get all excited and start investing in derivatives, derivatives are referred as to as financial weapons of mass destruction. They are very volatile. Thus, be careful and scrupulous while you invest in derivatives. Even large banks full of professional investment managers, such as Bering's Bank, have lost excessive amounts of money in derivatives. So please be careful. And that concludes today's podcast, wherein we have provided a basic introduction into derivatives and shares. In the following episodes, we'll cover the modus operandi to invest in these financial instruments and we'll cover the markets they operate in. Thank you for listening. It was great fun explaining these technical assets. See you in the next episode. Goodbye.